So one of the things that attracted me about the vision of Christ Church is this opportunity that it's always been and always will be about people. The opportunity to reach people with a community-based approach so that those folks can reach others and that the community gets better. People individually get better. It's an opportunity for people to learn together and to love together. And that is one of the things that really, really attracted me. Reaching people, individual lives, people matter. Um, their stories matter, their lives matter. So I love that. And I also love that it's renewed communities because when people are reached, um, the communities are also renewed and restored. And that's the essence of the gospel. Individual lives are transformed, but also whole communities are transformed when we do this and do this well. I'd like to be a part of this uh, opportunity to launch this next initiative uh, with a site for because it's a valuable space to be able to meet people who have gifts of leadership and gifts of being able to reach other people, gifts to communicate, uh, to rally teams. It's just going to be an opportunity to see the best of people in a wonderful environment. I'm looking forward to that. You know, people have um, often asked, in fact, I even remember asking myself, like, why do we need uh, another church? Aren't there plenty of churches out there? But yet studies have shown that people who are not part of a part of a church are not likely to join an existing church as much as they are likely to join a new church. There's something about a new church and something to get involved in and reaching in their own community um, that really excites me. And also having a campus in this community that currently lacks a lot of evangelical churches, I'm hoping that people say, we want to come and we want to be here and this is a part of our community and a part of our people that we want to join in and be on mission together. The space for people to say, hey, I can get involved. I can actually get in the game. And that's, that's what living a great, abundant life is all about. The opportunity to use the things that make up who we are to actually play a part of something that's a lot larger. And so that's what we're trying to do. And we'd love for you to contact us or to contact the church uh, so that we can have a conversation with you. We'd love to uh, begin trying to figure out how you play a part in the bigger picture. Well, good morning and welcome to those joining us upstairs and at uh, Highland Park and Crossroads. Happy St. Patrick's Day. You would have thought I would have remembered that. I am told I have Irish blood. Uh, I haven't done that 23andMe, spit in the cup thing, get your DNA done. But my mother's name was McBride, and I'm a fan of St. Patrick. You would have thought I would have remembered, but I didn't. So I'm dressed like Johnny Cash, not uh, with any St. Patrick stuff on. But uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. So last week, if you were here... Um, we had a video that showed uh, a couple guys, one from a member at the Highland Park campus, one a member at the Lake Forest campus, and they uh, talked about working together on Matthew Homes. And, um, and then later on, we had uh, a number of the campus pastors on a video talking about what's happened in, in, at their campuses over the course of the last year as they have been involved in REACH. And then um, and then I sort of, we, we focus a little bit more globally, right? So REACH, as, as you've been hearing over the last month and certainly today, it, it's this initiative, this two-year initiative to, to fuel a movement that's going to reach people and renew communities. And so there's this, this bogey that says we want to help start 10 uh, initiatives, most of them overseas, uh, and, and then we want to see 500 people baptized, we want to see 100,000 service hours. And so we, we looked more at what's going on globally. So, so we want to see six 
uh, churches started overseas, and so we got started on that. We're halfway done. We're halfway through reach. We're halfway done. Uh, we got something. We saw pictures of the work in Ghana. We, I was just in India meeting with the church planner there. The, uh, the IT corridor, where we're starting a work in Chennai, and then uh, also Istanbul. And then I talked out of Mark chapter 1, verse 15, about the kingdom of God. Noting that this is a big theme, this is a big topic, that Jesus preaches about the kingdom of God over and over and over. He doesn't, he doesn't talk about healing, he just heals. He doesn't talk about power over nature, he just demonstrates that he can calm a storm. And he, he doesn't talk about the resurrection, he doesn't preach on that, he just rises again. What he preaches about, what he teaches about is himself, <laughs> that he's that he's God, right? This, this shocks some people. They think that Jesus' teaching is all about being nice and kind. Really, he's his biggest topic. And because he's humble, people are surprised by this. Um, and he is humble. And he does serve. And he lives very simply. And, and he models humility. But he says, well, yes, I am, I am God. And I am eternal. And I did create everything. And I am going to come back as judge of everybody everywhere. I mean, he does talk about himself. The other big topic is the kingdom of God. And so I said, look, uh, God has a plan. He wins. <laughs> There's, he, Jesus returns as king. There's a big party, a coronation, a celebration, a wedding feast. There's a, there's a lot of different terms for this. But, the, but we're headed towards something that is big and wonderful. And then, and then the values. Jesus brings the, the, this animating ethic of love, and, and he fundamentally reorders things so that the world works. And uh, I said, look, we have an opportunity to be involved in this. Um, God doesn't need us. He's going to pull this off, whether you're involved or not. I cited uh, Psalm 50.12, where God says, uh, if I was hungry, what would I tell you? Uh, like you could do something for me, right? I, I created everything. I've got things under control. I said, we're not needed, but we are invited to be part of what God is doing. So uh, today we're looking at, at this kingdom of God from a little bit different vantage point, and we're also thinking more locally. So you just saw on the video two people that are focusing locally. So Clary um, Clary is sort of helping us oversee all of these expansions. Clary has planted two churches already. He's led a third. He also played uh, football for uh, the University of Alabama. He tells me they have a team. I actually haven't heard of it before. But anyway. So, uh, and then Jonathan. Jonathan used to be at Christ Church. He was an intern with us a few years ago. He and his wife went off. He did a residency, a pastoral residency. He's back. He will be the the campus pastor for the fourth site. So, where will the fourth site be? Well, you have to watch this video. So, as we uh, as we started our task force to help find the uh, the, the place for the site four campus, um, we really tried to balance both kind of the analytical perspective, kind of the demographic, uh, people, um, and uh, and really tried to learn also where where God was leading us in the process. And we did. We looked at eight surrounding communities to our current multi-site campuses, and um, we did look at you know different aspects of those communities. And we all you know sort of divided them up, did our 
homework, brought back the information we found about those communities. Um, and yeah, we all did go into it with different assumptions, thinking this is probably where it would go, this makes the most sense, or I think this. And in the end, um, after we all came back together and really looked at different aspects of those communities, we had a unanimous um, decision. And I think we were all equally pretty surprised that we came to that conclusion. Looking at that moment when we all decided Vernon Hills, and, and it really was a unanimous decision, um, we had laid out the eight different communities we looked at. We had talked about all of the, the different factors, whether that be um, the amount of Christchurch uh, followers that are in that area, the amount of churches that are in that area, the demographics from age to, you know, to just all the different demographics. And we just had a cool moment as we laid out all eight of those and walked around the room. Uh, everybody just said Vernon Hills is the place. And it, and it felt just as much of an affirmation of kind of the analysis, but really just the movement of God saying this is where we should go. That location made more sense. It's within administrative reach from our current sites, and yet it's gonna pull from new communities that we're not currently um, reaching. When I dream about the foresight, it, you know, it kind of takes me back to sort of Christchurch's founding, uh, seeing itself as a city on a hill. Um, and that's a really personal thing for me in that um, Christchurch was instrumental in uh, allowing me to form a relationship with the Lord. And so when I think about the foresight, I think of just extending that concept to more and more people and, and having the opportunity to bring more and more people into a relationship with Jesus. So some of you hear Vernon Hills and you think, uh, whoa, I live in Vernon Hills. What, what does this mean for me? I don't know. Maybe a lot. Uh, we have eight services on a weekend. We're going to be looking for people from all the campuses, all the services to be a part of uh, getting this started. And what we promise is, if you're part of that launch team, it will be hard. So you will... You will pray more, you will serve more, you will work more, you will invite more, you will give more, but it'll be wonderful, and uh, it's a significant thing. So we're moving down that path. Now, over the last year and a half, as we've been talking about this, I repeatedly take everybody back to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16 is where Paul and a group of people are launching on their second missionary venture. And Paul, they've come in, from the field, Paul was on his first trip planting churches. They come back to Jerusalem for this council, and then he heads out uh, in Acts chapter 16. And they head out to go to Asia, to plant churches in Asia. And you read in Acts 16, it says, well, but the Spirit of the Lord prevented us from entering Asia. And, and, and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to not let us get into Asia. And, uh, and God's Spirit prevented us from going to Asia. Oh, on and on, and they keep trying, and they keep trying. And then eventually there's this Macedonian call, Paul has a vision in the night, and they end up going to Europe. So I've just said, if Paul was wrong by a continent, perhaps we will not get it right the first time. But we are going to be, we're moving, we're headed in that direction, and uh, excited about that. So, back to the Sermon on the Mount, the passage that was read. 
Uh, this is the most famous sermon ever preached by anyone ever, likely the most famous speech ever given by anyone ever. It's recorded in both Matthew and Luke's gospel. Jesus would have given this probably dozens, if not hundreds of times as he was traveling around over the course of three years. This is his keynote address. And in Matthew's gospel, he, he starts initially with the Beatitudes and, and then, um, then he moves on and he talks about his teaching because his teaching is so shocking to people. He teaches unlike anyone else. He has authority and their heads are bobbing. They can't believe what he's saying. Then he has this uh, commentary on uh, the, the Ten Commandments. He gives us a meditation there. He moves on. He talks about eternity, the importance of storing up treasures in, in heaven because the fact that we're going to live forever changes everything about how we should think and live. And uh, then there's uh, some warnings about money, and then he talks a little bit about anxiety, and then he goes to this passage that uh, we're looking at in particular, the keynote verse in this initial section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's sort of a simplifying, it's sort of a clarifying, clarion call by Jesus. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Now, you have to understand, we're coming at this with a question in mind. Last week the question was, what is God doing? Like, what's the plan? Where is this headed? And this week the question is, so in light of God's plan, what am I supposed to be doing? Like if this is, if this is what God is doing, how does that influence me? And here we have, in this most famous sermon, we have Jesus speaking. And what he says is just what I said. He talks about the kingdom. And so he's giving advice, and he says, here's my advice. Seek first the kingdom of God. So I, I want to I, I I frame for you what I think that means. Like, how does that change not just our life, how does it change our day? Like, how does it change the afternoon <laughs> if this is what's going on? Now, there's two things that are important as we get started here in this question. What, what, what does this mean for me? What is expected of me? The first thing I want to make clear, again, I try to always make this clear. Whenever I'm going to lay out, this is what you need to do, I want to be really clear. We're not earning. Right? That's not the gospel. That's not the way this works. So I'm not going to give you things you need to do so God will be impressed and he will like you and that when you die you get to go to heaven. No, that's, that's not the message of Jesus. The message we get in the New Testament is that God is the hero. God is amazing. God loves. God reaches down. We're saved on the basis of grace. We're saved in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. So, so if we could monetize our moral debt. If, I, if we could monetize your moral debt, 830 million, 830 billion dollars. It's a guess. Some of you would be higher, probably, but we'll just say. If you owe, if you owe hundreds of billions of dollars, right, you're unable to pay even 83 cents of that. Right? So, so the, but the good news is, 
you don't have to. <laughs> so the entire debt is taken away by what Jesus does. Jesus' life and death is sufficient. So we're not looking at things we're doing in terms of trying to earn God's favor. We're looking at things we do after we understand God's love and grace and favor that we do. Because, oh my goodness, I'm given eternal life. My sins are forgiven. So in light of that, what are the things that we do? The second thing I want you to understand about this question, what is expected of me, is that this actually is one of the big questions. Like of all times, this is one of the big questions. What's expected of me? So, so when you study philosophy, you know that there are a, ha- a half dozen questions. Some have five, some philosophers have nine, but they're basically the same. It's the same list, just broken out a little bit different ways. But there are these questions that everybody has to answer. Now, you may have never actually thought about it. Lots of people have really bad answers to these questions, but it shapes their life. Lots of people have mutually contradictory answers to these questions. But these questions are the big questions. So, what is it that is ultimately important? Like, what matters? This is, this is the God question. What is, what is the most significant thing ever? And then, second question, who, who am I? Like, who am I? What am I? And, and, and what's expected of me? And where did I come from? And what happens when I die? And how do I, how do I know answers to any of these questions? Like, where do I go to get answers to any of these questions? These six questions are the big questions. And one of them is, what is expected of me? So if you, if you look at the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, they, they framed it a little bit differently, but they were always asking, what, what is the good life? Like, what, what am I supposed to be doing? How how do I know if I'm living a life worthy of my calling? And and after a thousand years, the the ancient Greek philosophers essentially gave up because they they couldn't agree. They they couldn't get close. They were just using reason. They they didn't have divine revelation. They were just using reason, and they couldn't agree. And so you got some people, you know, the... Uh, a lot of them just said, we don't know. Uh, that, that's sort of the agnostics. And then you've got the, you, you've got the hedonists that said, well, if we don't know, then I'm just going after pleasure, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So that's where I'm going. And the Stoics said, well, if we don't know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be strong. I'm gonna, I am going to be impervious to the kind of suffering that goes on in this world. I'm not going to love anything. I'm going to be unmovable. And, and you know, others, the, the naturalists said, well, Look, the reason no one can come up with an answer about what the good life looks like is because there is no answer, there is no God, we're just, we're just, we're just biological machines, we're just, we're naked apes, we're carbon-based bipeds, it's all we are, and what you see is all you get. And then the existentialist said, well, if there's, if there is no ultimate meaning in life, then I'm free to make up my own meaning in life. And so you've got all these different groups of people trying to come up with answers and not getting them, and, and we actually are told what we're supposed to do. God does tell us what the good life looks like, what is expected of us. So I want to I wanna sort of frame under this idea that we are to seek first the kingdom. I, I want to I list seven categories because what we see over and over are some of the same 
different verses and different books and, and different stories are, are making the same half dozen points. And so I've, I, have, I have seven buckets that sort of symbolize what we are told is expected of us. What it would look like to live a good life. Number one, we are expected to pursue God. Exodus chapter 20 is where the Ten Commandments start, and, and we read, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And, and gods could be spelled with a small g. So just no other first loves. Nothing, nothing that is going to be your passion, be your, be your purpose. I am to be number one. And then when Jesus comes along in uh, Matthew 22, he's asked, you know, could you summarize the law? What do you, could you distill it down for us? Jesus, could you tell us the essence of what we're supposed to do? And he says, sure. He says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. God first. And there's other passages we can go to. Revelation chapter 2, when we're seeing letters to the churches in Ephesus where Jesus is speaking, he says to the church in Ephesus, you've done some things right, there's things about you that I like, but here's my knock against you. You've lost your first love. I'm to be your first love. So over and over we see this idea. Number one, God is to be first. Number two, we are to love others. We're to seek and pursue God. Number two, we're to love others. So when Jesus is asked to summarize the law, he gives us the greatest commandment. I left half of it off. So he says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this is not actually advice to tell us to love ourselves. I hear a lot of people say, I don't love myself. The problem we have today, all this low self-esteem, people don't love themselves enough. Mm, No, Uh, different sermon, but let me just say, uh, part of the problem that we have with low self-esteem is that people are just too self-absorbed. And we're, not, we're just not big enough. We're not important enough to fill the hole in our heart. <laughs> and, so we, and, and so if we're just self-referential, it just comes apart and we, we don't have enough to carry us forward. But the point is, we are told that we are to be about loving others. In this, in this kingdom of God where everything is set right, it's set upside down. All these power relationships, everything else gets turned really radically upside down. So we're told in a bunch of different places that there are groups of people we are expected to love. We're expected to be particularly mindful and, and caring towards the poor. The oppressed, widows and orphans and aliens and the people that are, that are down and out, people, people who are fighting injustice. We are, we are to love and care for those people. Secondly, we're to care and love our family. So we are, our family gets singled out for being the source of our care and concern. Third, we're to love and care for each other in the church. God says, this is, Jesus says, this is how they will know that you are mine, that you have love one for another. 
Um, fourth, this passage that I'm citing out of Matthew 22 tells us we're to love our neighbor. And then Jesus, of course, defines neighbor in a crazy way in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's a very expansive way. And then also we're told that we are to love our enemies. We serve an enemy-loving God. It's, it's the only way we get in. Romans makes this point. Paul says, while we were yet sinners, and, and this could be translated, while we were yet enemies of God, God loved us and sent his son. We are serving an enemy-loving God, and we are told that we are to love our enemies. Now, just a couple observations here. Today, what we hear is that we are to be tolerant and civil. And if we try to be tolerant and civil, we generally get creamed by our own side because we're being weak. And uh, the call from Jesus is not to be tolerant and civil. That's way too low a bar. The call is to love our enemies. Which, uh, I I, want to point out, doesn't mean we can't disagree with them. But it also doesn't mean that what we're supposed to do is to go become friends with them. Because generally when you try to become friends with somebody, what you're trying to do is to get them to think like you. If, If you're trying to be friends with somebody that's an enemy... The way we think about that is I need to persuade them to think like I do, to, to, to do the things I do, to vote like I do, and then, then we can be friends. Now, what we're, what we're being called to do by God, and this is the radical, crazy, upside-down values of the kingdom, what we're being called to do by Christ is to be the kind of people who treat those who treat us like enemies, like friends. We are to love our enemies. And by the way, Jesus says, um, you know, many of you love those who love you, right? There's a certain economics of friendship that happens where you're nice to somebody, they're nice to you, and and a friendship develops. And Jesus says, yeah, 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 yeah. That's fine, but you can't be impressed by that. I mean, anybody can do that. He says, "Even, even, even the pagans can do that. I'm calling you to love your enemies. So, number one, we are to seek God. Number two, we are to love others. Number three, we are expected to study this book. So, God is uh, transcendent. He's beyond us. He's, he's holy above us. He's, he's in the world, but he's beyond the world as well. And so the only way we, we actually know things about God is because he chooses to reveal them to us. And the primary way that we know things about God, the best way, the, the most powerful indications we get of who God is, is by looking at Jesus. So Hebrews 1 tells us that, 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 uh, that, that Jesus is the image of God the Father. And the, the exact representation of his being, as somebody says, uh, as some translations have that. Uh, so, so the primary way that we can understand 
what God the Father looks like is to look at God the Son. There is no God. There is no God in heaven who is not radically like Jesus. So the first thing is we've got Jesus. The second thing that we can say about how we know who God is is by looking at creation. Because you can tell some things about the creator by looking at the world that he created. But that doesn't tell us much. And there's a lot of confusion there. And so we have been given this book. And it's not simply called a divinely inspired book. What we're told is that it is a divinely expired book. It's, it's, it's literally the, the expiration of God. It's the breath of God. And so we have this book, and we are told over and over and over that we need to read it and, and to study it. We're to ponder it. We're to meditate on it. We're to memorize it. We're to feed on it. And there are a lot of places, like 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we are um, admonished if we don't know it. So Paul will say... Uh, Look, I should be able to teach you at this level, (laughs) but I'm still down here. You're still babies. You still need milk. I can't give you solid food because you have not been studying. So the goal, let me me be clear here for a second. The goal of Bible study is not Bible study. The goal is not knowledge about God. The goal is to know God, but, but, but that happens in large part by studying his revelation of himself in this book. So the third thing we're to do is to study the book. The fourth thing that we're expected to do is grow, mature, become like Jesus. Uh, Many people know Romans 8, 28. uh, All things work together for the good of those who, who know God and are called according to his plan and purpose. They stop there and they don't read Romans 8, 29, which says, for those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So we are headed towards becoming more and more like Christ. That we are to, we are to grow, and if we're not growing, if we're not getting better, then something is wrong. And lots of people stop growing. And lots of places where we're told to discipline ourselves for godliness, we're to be holy like God is holy. The the fruit of the Spirit that we find in Galatians 6 is a description of Jesus, and it's to be a description of us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. This is, we are to become more and more like that. And if we're not growing in that direction, then something is wrong. Now, let me acknowledge that it can be hard to see growth in our own life. When we, when we come to faith, generally we think, okay, God is up here and I'm down here, and, and wow, that's a big gap. And, and the, more we, the more we lean into the gospel, the more we understand that we have been saved, not because we're good, we're not. This is all about God's love. And the more we sort of relax in that, then the more we understand who we really are and we realize, oh, I'm not here. <laughs> I'm down here. Like, uh, now that I, I can drop my defenses, I realize, well, I got a, I'm, a lot, I'm a lot darker than I thought. And the more we study who God is, the more we realize he's a lot higher. And so 
over time, we initially think we need this much grace, and then we start to see, no, I need this much grace. And it can be hard. It can be hard to see growth in that, but it can be done. And if you don't see growth in your own life, other people ought to see growth in your life. I mean, there ought to be other people that could say, you know, I, you're, you're, you're getting wiser. You're getting kinder. You're more. I see God doing something in your life. So, number four, we are to become more like Christ. Number five, we are to be good stewards. What does it look like to be involved in the kingdom of God? It means we are investing who we are in the kingdom of God. We are everything on the asset side of our balance sheet is God's and it's on loan from God to us, temporarily entrusted to us. The only thing we bring ultimately is sin and need. And everything else is on is God's and we are expected to be stewards of that. So part of this would be our giftedness. So we each have gifts, talents, abilities. We've been, we've been gifted by God in certain ways. And we are expected, you see this in Romans 12 and 14 and 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and Ephesians 4 and other places. We are expected to use those gifts, those abilities, those talents to serve other people. So some of you have leadership gifts. Some of you have hospitality gifts. Some of you have, there's lots of different kinds of gifts. We're expected to use the gifts God has given us in ways that advance what is ultimately coming about, his kingdom. And if we're not, that's, that's, that's not where we should be. You should be able, you should be able to look at your life and to say, I am serving others, I am caring for others, whether it's through formal or informal programs, but I am caring for others because God has changed my heart. That's just just part of the equation. So I often will say it is not faith plus works equals salvation. That's not the equation. It's not faith plus works equals salvation. It's faith equals salvation plus works. The works still matter. They are expected. James says faith without works is dead. It's not real faith. It's not saving faith. So the confirmation of the faith is the works. We are expected to serve. And uh, for some of you, this is a sticking point because you want your time. Your time is the most precious commodity that you have. For others, it's money. We're expected to be good stewards of our our time, of of our gifts, of our resources. We are expected to invest God's money according to God's plans. <laughs> we are expected to use the resources temporarily entrusted to us in ways that advance God's kingdom. And uh, for some of you, this is really hard. Uh, look, the, this REACH initiative is, is, is fueled by the gifts of time, the gifts of talent, the gifts of money, of you. And, and so I'm just going to say, in the end, I am confident you want to be as, you want to be generous with every aspect of your life. You, there, there should be a, a, a radical generosity of your life. 
And that goes in all directions. And uh, so uh, we have made, Sherry and I have made one of the bigger commitments we've ever made to try and say, yeah, we want to we see this thing go forward. So uh, the challenge is out there. We need to be good stewards of everything that we have. Number six, we need to uh, share the gospel. This is a big part of reach. This is, this is the way God's kingdom moves forward. So we are to seek God. We're to, we're to love others. Uh, we are expected to study the Bible. We're expected uh, to be um, uh, stewards of the things that God has given us. We are expected to share the gospel. And it gets harder and harder every day, but it's not as hard as it's been at other times and in other places or in other places as it is right now. And so it takes more love, more thought, more wisdom, more courage, but we are expected to invite people to follow Christ. And finally, we are expected to obey. So this is um, full disclosure here. As I was jotting down these categories on the back of a napkin, uh, I said, I need, a, I need a, a general bucket because there's a whole lot of one-offs, right? We're ex- or, or things that aren't categories. We're expected to pray. We're expected to sing. We're expected to turn the other cheek. We're expected to be baptized. We're expe- there's a whole lot of things we're expected to do. And so I just want to say we're expected to obey the things that God calls us to. So <clears throat> what is expected of you? What is expected of me? God has a plan. We're expected to seek that plan. That means we seek God first. That means we love others. We bring this radical kingdom ethic to our life today. It means that we are studying God's book because that's, that's one of the principal ways we're going to be shaped and molded. It means that, that we are good stewards of the things that God has entrusted to us. It means that we are growing. It means we're sharing the gospel. It means that we are obeying. And uh, look, God has a plan. <laughs> he wins. Jesus returns. Big party. Uh, and, and, and this kingdom that we long for, a world that works, this kingdom is coming. You do not have to be involved in bringing it about. But we have an opportunity to be involved in bringing it about. And so I invite you to be involved in bringing it about in ways big and small, in ways of your time, in ways in helping start new campuses, in ways in giving and supporting and getting us to the level that we're trying to get to. Let me end with this. It comes out of Esther chapter 4. And uh, it's, this, it's this statement that rankled some of you. I got emails. You didn't like this idea that God doesn't need us, but God doesn't need us. He's going to get it done. Uh, Mordecai says to Esther, Esther's the, the, the queen. Uh, she's a Jewish young woman. She's the queen of the king of Persia. Uh, the king of Persia is getting duped by this guy, and he's ordered all the Jews to be killed. He doesn't realize that his queen is a Jew. Uh, and Mordecai, the uncle who's coaching the, the queen, says, you need to go to him and tell him. And she says, no, I don't want to do that. Too risky. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not willing to do that. And he says to her, do not think that if you do not go to the king, that you alone among all the Jews will be spared. For salvation will come to the Jews through someone else. Right? God will get it done. God is going to get his plan done. Right? But who knows but that you have come to favor for just such a time as this, right? You have an opportunity to be involved in this. And so I extend that opportunity to you. Let's reach. 
Let's move forward. Let me pray for us. Father, we do uh, look forward to a world that works, a world where there isn't pain and poverty and injustice and, and all the things that are going on. We pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Guide us, direct us, use us to that end. Allow us to be part of your eternally important work in this world and beyond. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.